0: Hey guys, just a quick warning that this episode includes discussions about depression and suicide. If you're struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 800-273-8255. Please take care. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish Podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine one minute you're having drinks with a family member, and the next thing you remember is waking up in a hospital bed surrounded by law enforcement officers. You're groggy, unsure of what transpired the previous day. For one young woman, this was her reality. And by the time the whole confusing ordeal was over, she would come to learn how she ended up in the hospital and that someone very close to her was behind it. As it turned out, she was not the only victim. She was just the only victim to survive. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of Stacy Castor. takes us to clay new york a suburb outside the big city it's the largest suburb in syracuse despite being close to the hustle and bustle of the big city clay is a quiet town a place where former city dwellers moved to start a family and raise children it is in this suburban family town where a welfare check would lead law enforcement to a body It was around midday on August 22, 2007, when local authorities received a call from a panicked woman asking for a welfare check on her husband. The caller identified herself as Stacy Castor, and then she explained that she had not seen her husband, David Castor, since 5 o'clock the previous morning following an argument. According to Stacy, she and her husband had an argument. Because David didn't want Stacy's daughter from another marriage coming with the couple on their anniversary weekend trip. Stacy reported that the altercation got incredibly heated, to the point that David went downstairs to the kitchen, grabbed a bottle of alcohol, went to the master bedroom, and locked the door. After that, Stacy reported that she could only hear shuffling around in the bedroom and then light snoring. She also let authorities know that she was worried about her husband, who, since his father's recent passing, was dealing with crushing depression. Stacy begged the officers to check in on her husband. Authorities were dispatched, and Stacy was told that they would get back to her shortly. With Stacy's permission, officers entered the Castor home. As they walked in, the home seemed eerily silent. Officers quickly began looking for the master bedroom, the last place David was seen. When they found the bedroom and approached the door, it was notably silent. The shuffling and snoring that Stacy reported hearing were not present. As an officer reached out to turn the door handle, it wouldn't budge. The door was locked. Officers yelled out for David, hoping for a response, but nothing. After getting no response, Officers broke down the master bedroom door. Immediately, they saw David Castor lying motionless, strewn across the bed. The scene around him pointed to one thing, suicide. It was obvious that he had been drinking heavily and possibly taking pills, but one item caught everyone's eyes. There was a glass cup on the nightstand and inside the half-full glass, was a lime green liquid. Officers also spotted something peeking out from under the bed. It was antifreeze, and liquid was spilling out onto the carpet. Authorities quickly alerted Stacy to come home. When she arrived, she walked into a full-blown death investigation. Immediately, Stacy began panicking, screaming out. He killed himself, The distraught widow was escorted elsewhere so police could speak with her about David's final days. As she was being questioned, authorities continued searching the home. Inside the kitchen trash can downstairs, officers found a turkey baster. When they lifted it out of the trash, officers noticed a familiar bright green liquid on the tip of it. Fairly quickly, officers put two and two together believing it was antifreeze inside the cup next to David's bed. Upon finding the turkey baster, officers were curious as to why David would have needed it to ingest the antifreeze. He could have just drank it from a cup on his nightstand or straight from the bottle. The turkey baster was immediately placed into evidence and authorities continued to investigate. I recently discovered Jenny Kane, a clothing company that offers timeless classic pieces in a beautiful neutral palette. Their collection has a really cool Southern California casual vibe. I've been wearing Jenny Kane's shearling mules with just about everything, and I get so many compliments. I wear them with jeans, dresses, and even my yoga pants, paired with a long knit sweater. Jenny Kane has become my go-to for clothes that are cozy but stylish, and the best part is, they will stand the test of time. Jenny Kane clothes are very well made, no one wear wonders. They have a signature fisherman cashmere sweater that is to die for, and will likely be my next purchase. I love that Jenny Kane pieces take you from winter into spring effortlessly, so you get really good use out of their clothes. Their sweaters are perfect for a cozy night at home or a night out. They're so versatile. I'm telling you, once you buy something from Jenny Kane, you're going to be a forever customer. Find your forever pieces at JennyKane.com and get 15% off your first order when you use promo code MURDERISH at checkout. That's J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com promo code MURDERISH. Do you just love standing in line? Well, if so, just keep going to the post office and have fun with that. But if you don't love standing in line, then you have to check out Stamps.com, where you can ship packages without leaving your house. I use Stamps.com to ship out merch to murderish listeners, and it saves me time, money, and my sanity. Whether you ship via USPS or UPS, Stamps.com has got you covered. Plus, you get awesome discounts, up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. And it's much less expensive than those expensive postage meters. If you're an online seller or business owner and you want to avoid standing in line and save money, Stamps.com is perfect for you. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MURDERISH. That's Stamps.com, promo code MURDERISH. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with estro control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. David Castor had been married once before. From his first marriage, he had one son, David Castor Jr., whom David was very close to. Father and son enjoyed hunting, fishing, and going to car shows together. David owned an air conditioning installation and repair company where he and his second wife, Stacy, worked together. After David's death, authorities began looking into alternative theories. At first glance, The scene where his body was found clearly indicated that he had died by suicide. One investigator, however, thought the scene seemed almost too clear. Glasses of alcohol were lined up on the bedside table. The antifreeze bottle was conveniently yet obviously sticking out from under the bed, and David's body was perfectly laid out over the bed. All of this along with the turkey baster they found with antifreeze on the tip. If David had used the turkey baster, why wasn't it found near his body? It did not make sense, so investigators continued pressing on. Soon, friends and family members of David and Stacy's were called in for questioning. Mostly everyone said that David was far from depressed and not someone who would ever contemplate suicide. That said, a few people did note some odd behavior Leading up to his death, one person mentioned that David's coordination and mental state just prior to his death were similar to someone who was drunk. He appeared off-balance and tipsy at times. According to some friends and family, David had struggled with alcohol before, but no one believed that it was a problem any longer. Other than comments about David's coordination being off, Everyone said that he was pretty much himself leading up to the discovery of his body on the 22nd of August. When asked about Stacy, almost everyone said that she was a loving wife. While the investigation surged forward, Stacy and her two daughters, Ashley and Bree, continued on with their lives. David's funeral came and went, and his family went on with life as best they could. When it came time to review David's will, the results were shocking. Every single belonging of David's was left to Stacy and her two daughters, David's stepchildren. Nothing was left to David's biological child or his first wife. This bewildered everyone. After the contents of David's will were revealed, his family began changing their tune about Stacy and authorities were more confident by this time that David had not died by suicide. According to the medical examiner, his death was caused by poisoning from antifreeze. When it enters your system, antifreeze is absorbed into the bloodstream. As it enters the bloodstream, it begins crystallizing and is then deposited into major organs such as the heart, lungs, brain, liver, and more. The crystals cause immense pain as they move throughout the body and typically organs begin shutting down. Death in this manner is slow and painful. It was odd to investigators that David would choose such a slow and agonizing end, especially considering the shotgun he had lying underneath his bed. Stacy Castor was brought in to be interviewed by detectives. After all, she was his wife and the last person to see him alive. When asked about the days leading up to her husband's death, Stacy told investigators that David seemed withdrawn, angry, and depressed. She theorized that his behavior had something to do with his father's recent passing. She said that on the day that she last saw her husband alive, they had gotten into a rather significant fight. David and Stacy both had children from previous marriages, and the children were a little older by the time the couple met. Because of this, neither David nor Stacy were close to their stepchildren. It didn't seem as though either person had a specific grievance with any of the kids. It was mainly that they were older and likely more reserved when interacting with their stepparent. Out of this, however, grew some contempt from Stacy. The casters had an anniversary approaching, and David had suggested to his wife that they go on a mini vacation to celebrate. They could take a weekend trip and stop at a fun amusement park. Stacy was totally on board, but she thought it would be even more fun if her youngest daughter Bree could accompany them. According to Stacy, David was very much against having Bree join them on their anniversary weekend, and this upset her. Angered at the thought of being forced to exclude her daughter, Stacy fought back, demanding that Bree join them on the trip. When David stood his ground, the fight went from casual to ugly. Stacy recalled that David was screaming, throwing things, and slamming doors. She said the fight ended with David grabbing liquor from the kitchen, walking upstairs, and locking himself inside their bedroom. Stacy claimed he then spent the evening drinking, only appearing when he needed more alcohol or something to mix it with. Resigned to the fact that David wasn't willing to budge on the subject, Stacy said she relented for the time being, leaving David to drink himself to sleep. The next morning, she didn't see David and assumed that he had either left for work or would meet her there later, since they worked together. Stacy told authorities that by the time the afternoon rolled around and she hadn't seen or heard from her husband, she got very worried. Not sure if he would answer her knocking at the bedroom door, Stacy decided instead to call police and have them check on her husband. That's when she discovered that David was dead. Stacy Castor was born on July 24, 1967, in Clay, New York. By all accounts, she had a normal childhood, growing up with her loving parents, Jerry Daniels and Judy Eaton. Her life changed, however, at age 17, when she met who would soon become her first husband, Michael Wallace. According to everyone around them, the couple immediately fell madly in love with each other. They were constantly with one another and always talking about marriage and children. The pair were inseparable, and soon they tied the knot. By 1988, Stacy and Michael had their first child, Ashley. Three years later, in 1991, their second daughter, Bree, was born. Stacy worked as an ambulance dispatch operator, while Michael worked nights as a mechanic. On the outside, Stacy and Michael's marriage seemed very happy. They appeared to be madly in love with each other and were raising a beautiful family. However, beneath the surface, many issues existed. Michael struggled greatly with alcohol and drug addiction, which put a large strain on their marriage, though he was taking steps towards breaking his addictions. The difference in work schedules was also hard on their marriage. With Stacy working during the day and Michael working overnight, the couple hardly had any time for each other. The tension in their relationship continued to build, which eventually led to conflict. Towards the end of their marriage, it was rumored that both Michael and Stacy were having affairs with other people. Oddly, despite having a rocky and loveless marriage, Stacy and Michael stayed together. At some point, Michael became ill. He seemed disoriented, swollen, and unsteady. He had a cough, among other minor symptoms. The symptoms had been noticed off and on for a period of over six weeks. Some would say about Michael that he appeared to be drunk or tipsy during this time. While visiting family over the holiday season in 1999, Michael's family noticed his illness And told him he should seek medical attention. He told them that he would, but he never made any appointments. Finally, after the new year, Michael began feeling worse and decided that a trip to the doctor might be needed. In January of 2000, Michael planned on calling his local doctor to make an appointment. Unfortunately, he never got the chance. On a cold afternoon in January, Ashley Wallace was sitting in the living room while Michael was laying on the couch. By this time, Ashley had become used to her father being lethargic and sleeping most of the time due to his mysterious illness. She was entertaining herself when she glanced over at her dad and noticed that he was making strange faces. She thought he was just being silly and trying to mess with her. Suddenly, Michael's arm flew up into the air, stalled for a moment, and then fell back down to his side. Still thinking it was nothing, Ashley continued playing before leaving to pick her sister up from school. The 11-year-old girl had no idea that her dad was dying. Stacy Castor returned home to find her husband still lying on the couch, motionless and cold. She called an ambulance, but there was nothing they could do. Michael was taken to the hospital, where it was decided that he had died from a heart attack, possibly in relation to whatever illness he had been suffering from. Michael was only in his mid-30s at the time of his death. Because it's not typical for men of his age to have fatal heart attacks, the doctor told Stacy that she could request an autopsy if she thought it was necessary. Stacy asked the doctor what he thought, and the doctor replied that he wouldn't recommend one, believing that Michael had died from an early age heart attack. Stacy decided against getting an autopsy, but not everyone agreed with her decision. Michael's sister, Rosemary Corbett, did not believe her brother had a heart attack. She noticed the odd, deep purple color of her brother's chest that didn't seem heart attack related. She pushed back on Stacy's decision and urged her to consider having an autopsy. Rosemary argued that Michael was far too young to have suffered a fatal heart attack. But Stacy wouldn't budge. She said the doctor's words were enough for her. And because she was Michael's wife, Stacy had the final say. There would be no autopsy. Michael was laid to rest and Stacy continued on with life along with her two daughters. It wouldn't be more than five years before Stacy's second husband would be buried just two grave plots over from her first husband. After Michael's death, Stacy was ready to find love again, and she found it quickly. She and David Castor began dating and the pair were married in 2003. David had one son from a previous marriage, and Stacy had her two daughters. Though they all seemed amicable, the girls had a hard time relating to their new stepfather, and David seemed as though he didn’t care to make an effort to get to know them. This caused a lot of tension in Stacy and David’s marriage. As the investigation into David's death continued, results came in from a fingerprint which was lifted from the scene. The results of the fingerprint scan revealed that Stacy's fingerprints were found all around the glass cup, which was found on the nightstand, which was confirmed to have antifreeze inside of it. With this new evidence, police were granted permission to wiretap Stacy's house. They also set up cameras outside of her home to keep track of who was coming and going at the residence. Authorities didn't stop there. They set up one last set of cameras and microphones around the graves of Stacy's two husbands, which only had one plot separating their grave sites. The middle plot was reserved for Stacy. Investigators were positive that Stacy would visit the grave sites, but she never did. Around this time, authorities announced that David Castor's death was not a suicide and that they would be starting a homicide investigation. The investigation continued for almost two years before something broke. Detective Spinelli, one of the lead detectives in David's case, recalled having a sixth sense about exhuming Michael Wallace's body. In a 2009 interview with ABC News, Spinelli said, the last thing I want to do is disturb someone that's at peace, especially if nothing showed up in the system. Spinelli was apprehensive to exhume Wallace's body, but he couldn't rest until he was sure that Michael's death was in fact caused by a heart attack. As it turned out, Spinelli's sense was dead on. After Michael's body was exhumed, an autopsy was performed. The results confirmed that he died from antifreeze poisoning, not by heart attack. Because of the crystals the chemical formed in Michael's system, it was clear that antifreeze poisoning was the cause of his death. Even with this new information, authorities needed more to convict Stacy. so the investigation continued. Investigators began speaking with family and friends all over again, this time, with a new intense focus on Stacy. Ashley Wallace, Stacy's oldest daughter from her first husband, started her first semester at college in August of 2007, nearly two years after the death of her stepfather, David Castor. Ashley had grown used to occasional visits from authorities and casual investigative interviews. However, on the morning of her first class, Ashley was surprised when detectives entered the room, asking to speak with her. They revealed to Ashley that her father had died from antifreeze poisoning, just like David Castor, almost two years earlier. Investigators pressed Ashley, hoping she might provide more information now that she knew her father had been poisoned as well. She was genuinely shocked after hearing the news about her father, and she was little help to investigators. Immediately after learning about her father's poisoning, Ashley called her mother to let her know. The next time investigators would see Ashley would be in a hospital bed after what appeared to be an attempted suicide. Apparently, Ashley's younger sister Bree had found Ashley barely breathing and surrounded by pills, alcohol, and a typed letter. The contents of the letter were baffling. In the apparent suicide note, Ashley confessed to killing her biological father, Michael, and her stepfather, David. Upon learning of Ashley's condition, investigators raced to the hospital where she was admitted. They arrived just as she was waking up. Investigators ordered hospital staff to keep Stacy Castor out of Ashley's room. And then, they began asking her questions. It was clear that Ashley was very confused. When asked why she attempted suicide, Ashley responded that she hadn't. When asked why she wrote a suicide letter, she said she didn't. When asked if she had poisoned both her father and her stepfather— Ashley was bewildered. Authorities, trusting Ashley's innocence, began explaining the situation to her and asking her about the days and hours leading up to her apparent suicide attempt. After hearing what Ashley remembered of the previous few days, officers walked into the hospital waiting room and arrested Stacy Castor. Working out at a gym is a thing of the past. I much prefer working out from home, which is why I love SoulCycle. SoulCycle instructors are so energetic and positive, and the music is always so motivating. The SoulCycle at-home bike has a 21-inch touchscreen and a kick-ass sound system that makes you feel like you're at a concert. It's amazing. Plus, Your monthly membership gets you unlimited access to all of your favorite SoulCycle instructors and access to the Equinox Plus app, where you can stream classes from other brands like Equinox, Rumble, TB12, Pure, Yoga, and Solid Core. A lot of people have to wait months to get their exercise bikes, but that's not the case with SoulCycle. You can get your SoulCycle at-home bike in one to three weeks. You can make payments on it if you don't want to pay a lump sum up front. Why pay expensive gym fees and work out in a crowded gym when you can just do it from home? Get your SoulCycle at-home bike today by visiting mysoulcyclebike.com murderish and use promo code murderish to get a free pair of at-home cycling shoes with your purchase. That's mysoulcyclebike.com murderish promo code murderish to get a free pair of cycling shoes with your purchase of your SoulCycle at-home bike. mysoulcyclebike.com murderish, promo code murderish. I always drink hot tea before I record episodes for Murderish. Plum Deluxe have quickly become my favorite teas. It's a family-owned premium tea company that follows a unique process to make their delicious teas. All of their teas are made and shipped out of Portland, Oregon, and they use high quality ingredients that result in such a great aroma and taste. With your tea subscription, you can customize based on ingredients you're not allergic to, and they offer teas with no caffeine. Plus, Tea Club members get free shipping and extra perks. I've been enjoying Plum Deluxe's No Obligations Decaf Black Tea and their Autumn Almond Chai. Not only do they taste amazing, they also don't have any soy, dairy, gluten, or hidden sugars. In fact, none of their teas do. Plum Deluxe is thoughtful about sourcing and the process by which they blend their teas. If you're a tea snob like me, visit PlumDeluxe.com Murderish to shop their amazing selection of premium teas blended to perfection. Enter VIP code MURDERISH at checkout for 10% off your purchase. Or if you like getting surprises in the mail, join the Tea Club and get 20% off code on additional teas and accessories. That's PlumDeluxe.com/murderish. Enter VIP code Murderish at checkout. Stacy was arrested on one count of second-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. She was also charged with forgery in regard to her second husband's will that excluded David's biological child she awaited a trial date behind bars. After a year and a half preparing, prosecutors were finally ready to bring the case to trial. In January of 2009, Stacy walked into the courtroom, facing 25 years to life in prison. Her defense team leaned heavy on Ashley's apparent suicide attempt to shift the blame away from Stacy, and they would come face-to-face with the state's star witness as she took the stand during her mother's trial. According to Ashley's testimony, on the day that she was visited at school by investigators, her mother had called and told her to come home for drinks. An unsuspecting Ashley agreed and went to her mother's house after class was over. While there, Ashley said that she and her mother began drinking. Ashley, who was no stranger to drinking, told her mother that the cocktail was unbearable and that she could hardly drink it. She recalled her mother telling her to just keep drinking and that it would taste better over time. At one point, Stacy even encouraged her daughter to stick the straw towards the back of her throat so she could drink more without tasting it as much. Ashley testified that she and her mother continued drinking together until Ashley passed out in her bedroom. The next day, Ashley told the court that her mother was once again asking to drink together, but Ashley was hungover from the night before and she had school, so she initially refused. Once she returned home from school, Ashley said that her mother was waiting with drinks already mixed. Ashley accepted the drink, but it still did not taste good. Stacy again encouraged her daughter to keep drinking, which Ashley did for a while. Then, she began to feel tired, at which time she retreated to her bed. The next thing Ashley remembered was waking up in a hospital with investigators in her face. The prosecution, led by Onodega County District Attorney William Fitzpatrick, brought up the apparent suicide letter and pointed out that Ashley denied writing it. In fact, based on information gathered from the computer used to write the letter, which was located in Stacy Castor's home, there were three different drafts of the suicide note. Furthermore, according to the prosecution, each note was written at a time and date when Ashley would not have been home. When that information was revealed, it painted a picture for the jury that Stacy had been the one who wrote the letter, not Ashley. Fitzpatrick noted later that he was astonished by Stacy's lack of emotion during her daughter's testimony. According to court transcripts, he said, "I can't imagine my own flesh and blood is fifty feet away from me, saying that you tried to kill me and not having a reaction to that." The prosecution had a huge win when the judge ruled that the death of Stacy Castor's first husband, Michael Wallace. Could be used during the trial. Fitzpatrick presented Michael's death to the jury, pointing out the striking similarities to David Castor's death. Both marriages hit a rocking point. Both men began exhibiting strange behavior before their death. Both men were found with either antifreeze in their system, or with symptoms of antifreeze poisoning. and both men were married to Stacy when they died. The prosecution then pointed out to the jury various slip ups and inconsistencies in Stacy's version of events. Throughout the trial, Stacy Castor had maintained her innocence. However, if she was innocent, the prosecution wondered aloud to the jury why her story kept changing. While being interrogated during the investigation, there were many times that Stacy had to repeat her version of events leading up to David's death each time investigators noticed tiny intricacies that were changed left out or added into her story during one particular interview when investigators asked Stacy about her last moments with her husband Stacy spoke about pouring David a drink investigators were stunned when Stacy had a minor slip of the tongue she said to them, I poured the antifreeze. I mean, I poured the cranberry juice in his cup. Intrigued by what almost sounded like a confession, authorities pressed harder on Stacy, but she pivoted and started accusing the police of trying to frame her for the murder of her husband. Then she refused to speak. Stacy seemed to not know the correct name of the chemical she allegedly used to kill both of her husbands. There were multiple times she referred to the antifreeze as antifree. This would be incredibly helpful to investigators, as they worked to prove that it was Stacy who wrote Ashley's suicide note. In the note, Ashley admitted to killing both her biological father and her stepfather, using anti-free. The chemical was misspelled in the note, exactly as Stacy had repeatedly referred to it during interrogations. This was big as it tied the suicide note back to Stacy. Stacy's defense called to the stand a pharmaceutical expert who claimed that Ashley would have had to ingest the chemical and alcohol only hours before being rushed to the hospital a much shorter time period than the alleged 17 hours in between Ashley going to her room and being found by her sister Bree. Despite the timeline being longer than expected, the extended period of time that Ashley was exposed to the chemical, along with the excessive amount of the chemical, caused a prolonged reaction which would account for the 17 hours passing and Ashley still feeling the effects of the chemical and alcohol mixture. On February 5th, 2009, the month-long trial was over, and the jury were dismissed to begin deliberating. Less than four hours later, they had reached a verdict. Of the second-degree murder and attempted murder charges, Stacy Castor was found guilty. The jury also found her guilty of one count of forgery in regard to David's will. One month later, Stacy was sentenced to 51 years and four months in prison. Even with time served, she would be 88 years old at her earliest possible release date. After the trial concluded, Ashley Wallace was asked about her mother She appeared full of anger and still in disbelief that her own mother, someone she considered to be her best friend, not only murdered her two husbands, but also tried to pin the murders on her before trying to kill her own daughter as well. In a 2009 interview with ABC's David Muir, Ashley said, I hate my mother for ruining so many people's lives. What gave her the right to play God with people? I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. Ashley told the press that her mother was where she belonged and that she would never have anything to do with her again. And Ashley kept her word. Neither she nor her sister Bree have seen their mother since the end of her trial. Stacy did have at least one supporter, though. Her mother advocated for her after trial, saying that Stacy was framed by police and that her daughter was innocent. Stacy filed an appeal after trial, but it was denied almost immediately. With Stacy behind bars, someone began looking further into her past. This person noticed another strange death that might be connected to Stacy. In 2002, only a couple of years after the death of her first husband, Stacy's father, Jerry Daniels, suddenly needed to be hospitalized for a minor lung complaint. Doctors treated Jerry and okayed him to be released after minor treatment. On the day that he was meant to be discharged from the hospital, Stacy visited her father's room, carrying an open soda can. As she was leaving, Something unexpected happened. Her father began seizing. His internal organs were failing. Just hours after Stacy was sitting alone with her father in his hospital room, Jerry Daniels died. It was well known within Stacy's family that she and her father did not have the best relationship. Even so, Stacy was the executor to her father's estate, and that, to many people, could have been Stacy's motive to kill her father. People wondered whether Jerry's death could have been murder at the hands of his own daughter. If Stacy was ruthless enough to murder two husbands and attempt to murder her own daughter, then she was likely capable of killing her own father. Regardless of the optics, nothing could be done to investigate Stacy's father's death because he was cremated. Seven years into her prison sentence, in 2016, Stacy Castor was found dead inside her prison cell. Her death was attributed to natural causes, though there is no clear confirmation of this. Stacy was 48 years old when she died. Michael Wallace and David Castor remained buried next to each other for some time, until Castor's son had his father's body moved. His new burial location is not known to the public. After her death in 2016, Lifetime Movie Network produced a movie based on Stacey Castor's life. The movie stars actress Nia Vardalos, who also starred in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. The film was released on February 1, 2020. When asked if Stacey would be considered a serial killer, many professionals are on the fence. The typical threshold between murderer and serial killer is typically three murders with cooling off periods in between. Stacy did at least attempt three murders, however, since the murders seem to serve some sort of purpose for her. It's hard to put Stacy in the same category as a serial killer, who may be compelled to kill without reason or purpose. Regardless of her classification, most people see Stacy as a cold and calculating killer who would murder anyone if it served to benefit her. Despite losing her father, her stepfather, and her mother, Ashley Wallace has been able to push forward. In an interview with Oprah Magazine, she said that with the help of doctors, counselors, and loved ones, she has been able to lead a semi-normal life. As of February 2020, Ashley was engaged to be married and still living in New York with her fiancé. In the same interview with Oprah Magazine, Ashley said, As hard as it is to get up every day and put a smile on my face, I know that I have to, because if I don't, then Stacy won. Ashley reported that she was looking forward to moving on with her new life and leaving her past behind her. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like to hear sources used for this episode, stick around after the closing music. Also, stick around to hear a promo for two great podcasts. The first promo is for Dark Poutine, a true crime podcast. And the other is for Criminality, a reality TV podcast that intersects with true crime. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers, like the recent episode where I talk about the time I came home to find two strangers in my house. You can sign up for Patreon at Murderish.com where there's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Thank you to Dorothy D, Tabitha D, Marissa M. and Kristen S. for becoming Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you guys so much. I want to connect with you guys. Follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and Twitter at Murderish Pod or join the Murderish Facebook group where we have so much fun. Don't forget to tell a friend about the podcast and write a review for Murderish in your favorite listening app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanan of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgeman. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. How's it going, eh? I'm Mike Brown, host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Every week we serve up a new Helping of Dark Poutine which focuses on true crime and dark history from north of the 49th parallel, with the Ottawa game covering cases from around the globe. So put on your tube, grab yourself a Double Double and a Nanaimo bar and join me and a co-host every Monday for a new episode of Dark Poutine, part of the Curious Cast Network with Chorus Entertainment. You can easily find us on any podcatcher, including iTunes and Spotify. Just search for Dark Poutine and hit subscribe. Hey guys, Melissa from Moms and Murder here, inviting you to check out my new show, Criminality, where I'll be taking a look at crime and reality TV with my co-host Rebecca Sebastian. Hi friends, I'm Rebecca, host of Dialogue, a true crime conversation. Face it, we all love to hate reality TV because what's better than escaping your dumpster fire of a life than watching someone else's? Join us as we discuss everything from a team mom with feathers in her hair to a 90 day fiance who enjoys a box of matches. And we may just call Nancy Joe while wearing our best pair of little brown BB shoes that only cost $29. And we can't forget the true crimes of the real housewives. Guys, they all have mugshots. That's where I'll be lending my expertise. We'll break it all down for you every other Friday, beginning February 12th, 2021. So go to criminalityshow.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Criminality, because loving reality isn't a crime. Sources for this episode include a News Channel 9 WSYR 2009 AP article, a Murderpedia article by Juan Ignacio Blanco at Murderpedia.org, an ABC News, ABC News Network 2009 article by Angela Chambers at abcnews.go.com. An In Touch Weekly January 31, 2020 article by Chelsea Duff at intouchweekly.com. A CNN Cable News Network 2007 article by Emanuela Grimberg at cnn.com. A Syracuse February 2nd 2020 article by Geoff Herbert at Syracuse.com. Content by a and dated January 28, 2020 by Adam Janos at AETV.com. An Oprah Magazine article dated October 6, 2020 by Elena Nicolau at OprahMag.com. An ABC News Network 2019 article by Ali Yang et al. at abcnews.go.com.